You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. As always, it's wonderful to be here with you in the presence of God, especially on this beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing, as, as Pastor Blair already prayed, our, our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. And last week, Pastor Blair actually, I keep saying his name, uh, he actually, he does so many things. Uh, he, he actually ushered us through the profound story of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptizer and how this was the starting point or, or the launch pad, really, for the beginning of Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the kingdom come to the world. Uh, We also learned that this baptism was a moment in which Jesus, the Son of God himself, identifies not only with his own humanity, but identifies with all mankind, Um, a theme that we'll be continuing today as well. And he did this through both fulfilling all righteousness and modeling for us perfect obedience and dependence on the Father, which is why the Holy Spirit then descends upon him like a dove as he comes out of the water from baptism, and a voice from heaven calls out, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And if you were of the the Pentecostal persuasion, you might think that since he's now filled with the Holy Spirit, crazy things are about to happen, right? But what actually happens next is incredibly more profound and necessary. The Holy Spirit actually leads him into the desert or the wilderness for 40 days where he's also tempted by Satan himself. And, 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 it, and it might seem like an odd thing to happen in that moment, right? Again, maybe you'd think that being filled with the Holy Spirit means he's now ready to do mighty and miraculous things in the name of God. But no, he's, he's led off to be alone and in solitude for over a month. So today we're going to figure out why this was necessary, not only for Jesus' ministry going forward, but also for us and for our salvation. So turn with me now to Luke 4. We're going to be starting at verse 1 and going to verse 15. So Luke 4, 1 to 15. It says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, 
it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, all right, most of us here probably know that one should never, ever, and I mean never, go grocery shopping on an empty stomach, right? Why? Because you'll end up with a grocery cart full of unhealthy snacks and beverages that weren't on your list. How many, come on, how many have ever done that? Yep, everybody here. That's what I thought. I'm guilty as well. When, when we're hungry, it's nearly impossible to resist the lure and temptation of the chip and candy aisle, right? So, so I'll do you a favor and say it again. If your stomach's rumbling, avoid at all costs walking through the automatic doors of your neighborhood grocery store, because if you do, it's pretty much like a mouse trying to avoid peanut butter on a mousetrap. It can't be done. The mouse simply cannot avoid going for it. The temptation is too great. Why? Because that temptation is pulling directly at what it already craves or desires. That temptation is pulling directly at what it already craves or desires. And therefore, when it comes to giving in to temptation, especially in regards to to sinful temptation, this is when it always wins. This is when temptation always wins, when it targets something we already desire. James 1, 14 to 15 says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it then gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So again, the tempter is only successful in luring us into his trap when he targets something that's in our hearts, which we already want. For example, I wouldn't be enticed by a pumpkin pie. That's gross. But a lemon meringue or a cherry pie, that I'd have a hard time saying no to. But spiritually and morally speaking, this is how Satan, the deceiver, the prince of the power of the air in this world continually attempts to draw us into his trap and away from God, whether it's directly by him or more often than not, indirectly through the systems and lures of this world. He targets his temptations at the sinful and fleshly cravings that have already taken root in our own hearts. As Timothy Keller tweeted this week, what the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. Everything follows the heart. In other words, when temptation gives birth to sin, again, it's really only revealing what was already there. So like a sneaky advertisement that pulls you in by by targeting something like your low self-esteem or your base wants and longings, Sinful temptation does the same type of thing. As Tabiti Aniabwile writes, Satan hates humanity. He loves, if Satan can love anything, to attack our points of weakness. 
So this is exactly how Satan tries to lure Jesus into denying and turning from his trust and dependence on God the Father during his time in the wilderness, simply by, by tempting and enticing his basic human desires. And so, of course, after Jesus had just spent 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and he's now incredibly hungry, I can't imagine how hungry he would be, Satan starts with the subject of food, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He starts with the subject of food. Though unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus proves that that his trust and desire was set on the Father's provision alone. So Satan tempts him by saying that if he's really the Son of God, then he could just make bread out of stone and feed himself. Ultimately, what he's trying to do here, he's trying to get Jesus uh, to, to act on his own accord, right? Like the people building the Tower of Babel, right? He's trying to get Jesus to act on his own accord rather than in the will of his Father, rather than being led by the Spirit. But Jesus, even with that rumbling stomach, resists the devil's scheme by, by quoting from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and saying, it is written, man must not live by bread alone. And as the Son of God, yes, he could have easily done this. Jesus could have miraculously made some bread, but he refuses because he chooses instead to trust in the Father's provision, in the Father's will. He desires this even before his own hunger, knowing that it's the word of the Lord and the presence of God which truly nourishes and strengthens above all. So being unsuccessful in his first attempt attempt to entice Jesus with the flesh, Satan moves on to plan B, to tempt Jesus with the lust of power. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and tells him that if he worships, worships him, he can have full authority and glory over all of it. What would you be willing to do for all the power and riches of the world? That's a pretty huge temptation. Many basically have already sold their souls to the devil for a taste of power and money. We know that throughout history, right? But Jesus resists again by again quoting from God's word. This time in Deuteronomy 6.13, he says, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Satan had tried to put himself in the place of God by bargaining worship for power, but Jesus proves once again that the desire of his heart and the purpose of his life are reserved for the worship and glory of God alone. And so finally, Satan takes him to the the top of the temple of God in Jerusalem, a reminder that, that Temptation can come at any time and in any place, even at church. And then, he, and then at the top of the temple, he tells Jesus to jump. Right? Because as he says, if he actually is the son of God, then his angels won't let any harm come to him. And interestingly enough, Satan quotes scripture here trying to twist even the word of God using Psalm 91, 11 to 12 to be exact, in order to deceive Jesus into sinning against God. But Jesus once again proves that 
that is already secure in the Father's faithfulness. He already trusts in, in, the, in his protection over his life, and he doesn't need to put God to the test in order to prove it. Furthermore, he refutes Satan by reminding him that according to Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, do not test the Lord your God, that it would have been a sin if he did force God to act contrary to his will. Once again, for the third time, Jesus resists temptation and proves that his faith, proves his faith and his humble submission to, to the Father. He proves his heart's desire is for God alone. So finally, after failing for the third time to tempt Jesus, Satan leaves him alone until a later time. I can imagine that Satan was probably seething in anger that he was unable to trick Jesus into turning from God and failing in his attempt to both destroy his sonship and put an end to his divine purpose before it even began. Because again, in every way that Jesus was tempted, he didn't sin. Each time he proved that he was the son of God and that his heart was set on the Father's will. Each time Jesus overcame. And interestingly enough, Jesus ends up accomplishing and receiving everything that he was tempted with, but instead from God and in his perfect timing. As Tabiti Aniabwile writes again, in his own time and in a way that glorified the Father, Jesus received everything that Satan tempted him with. Jesus would miraculously produce bread for the hungry masses, obtain all authority and splendor in heaven and earth through the cross and resurrection, and receive the service and worship of heaven's angels as he rules at the Father's right hand. So he receives everything, but in God's timing, in God's will according to God's plan. And this is also a reminder that Satan will often tempt us with the very thing we've been promised with as well, right? But he'll tempt us to take a shortcut or to take a different route in order to get it more easily or quickly. But Jesus shows us that, that it's important to not only trust in God's promises, but to also trust in his will and in his timing for when and how we receive them. Don't take shortcuts. Don't sell your soul to the devil to get there quicker. As it says in James, trust God, resist the devil. And on, on that note, now I want to spend some time talking about the way Jesus overcame these temptations and what we can learn from it. But at the same time, I want to talk about why the Holy Spirit led him in, into the desert for 40 days to be tempted in the first place. And I'm sure there are many reasons we could discuss, but I want to highlight three main reasons this morning as to why Jesus was led in, into the wilderness to be tempted. And these three, words, re, these three reasons were, number one, to fully commune and identify with humanity. To fully commune and identify with humanity. Number two, to accomplish for mankind what mankind failed to do. To accomplish for mankind what mankind failed to do. And number three, to prepare himself for ministry and for the cross. To prepare himself for ministry and for the cross. We're going to start with the, the first two, talking about the first two. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So again, Jesus identifies and communes with us in our weaknesses, tempted as we were, right? But yet, unlike us, he was able to overcome. Unlike the first Adam, who even though he dwelled in God's presence and had a full stomach, had everything he needed, still chose to deny God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Jesus, hungry after 40 days of fasting, passes the test of obedience and chooses to trust in the will and provision of God. And unlike the Israelites, who repeatedly failed and turned from God in their 40 years of of testing in the desert, Jesus survives that test in the desert by proving that his faith and hope rest in God alone. He accomplished for mankind what mankind couldn't. So in going through this time of testing, Jesus both communes with us in our humanity and in our weakness, but at the same time, he also accomplishes and overcomes the sin and temptation that we couldn't. So in in doing so, in, in enduring and overcoming this temptation in our place, eventually to the point of taking our sin and suffering at the cross, Jesus can now both sympathize with us in our plight, but even more than that, he also becomes our ever-present help. He becomes our ever-present help in time of need. And so the point of this narrative ultimately is to remind us that the only way that we can overcome temptation and sin is to place our lives in the hands of the only one who has in Jesus Christ. He alone is the Son of God who became like us in every way in order to win the victory over Satan. He alone is both our sacrifice and our righteous high priest who gives us confident access to the Father in our time of need. He is our shield, our refuge, our joy, our strength, and our deliverer. He's the one who can change our heart's desire to trust in God rather than the things of the world. Ultimately, he is the armor of God we can put on in order to resist the devil and all his schemes. So whenever we're being tempted, our best strategy and only winning strategy is to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. That's that's the primary lesson here. But there's another lesson because, again, before he was tempted... Jesus was also led into the wilderness for 40 whole days of solitude. What's that about? 40 whole days of solitude by himself in the desert. Well, I'd argue that this was a time of preparation for both his ministry and his journey toward the cross. And I think we can learn from this as well. This time of solitude and preparation, of fasting and communing with God and God only, of laying down his his weakness, his human weakness before the Father in order to be strengthened by him is what not only gave him the strength to resist the devil, but also prepared him to accomplish what he came to do. 
John Mark Comer writes, for, for years, this story made no sense to me because I thought of the wilderness as the place of weakness. I read it this way, isn't that so like the devil to come at us at the end of a long day or a long week when we're hangry and at our worst? But then I realized I had it backward. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness because it was there and only there that Jesus was at the height of his spiritual power. It was there only after a month and a half of prayer and fasting in the quiet place that he had the capacity to take on the devil himself and come away unscathed. And as Luke tells us, it was also immediately after this time of solitude and testing that Jesus would then begin ministering and teaching to the people in the synagogues. Ultimately, again, this was a time of preparation for Jesus. And it's no wonder then that for the rest of his life and ministry, Jesus would repeatedly choose to find times and spaces of solitude to pray and fast and be alone in the presence of God. In fact, the busier and more in demand he becomes, the more he seeks times of solitude. And at the same time, he teaches his disciples to do the same thing. As Ruth Barton writes, Jesus seeks to guide his disciples then and now into rhythms of solitude, community, and ministry. In such a rhythm, solitude helps us stay attentive to the dynamics of spiritual exhaustion and attend to the deeper sources before they pull us under. It means allowing God to be with us in that place and waiting for him to do what is needed. In silence, my soul waits for you and you alone, O God. From you alone comes my salvation. Psalm 62.1. And let's not forget that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he tells his disciples to do what? Wait. He'd already charged them to go spread the gospel and make disciples. But before they do it, he tells them to wait. To wait and pray. To wait and pray. For what? For his spirit to ascend upon them. And so they needed time in the wilderness. They needed time in solitude and prayer and fasting so that they could be empowered to go in the name of Jesus. And as Christians, we, we tend to just want to get to the action, to the excitement, right? To get going, to get busy and applaud ourselves for how much we're doing for Jesus. But right here is a reminder that before we do anything, we should first surrender ourselves and come quietly before the Lord with prayer and fasting, waiting to be strengthened, strengthened by him to go to come before him with our weaknesses so that in him we could be made strong so that he can move and work in us to accomplish his good and perfect will. Speaking of which, Jesus also demonstrates here how in the power of the Holy Spirit, the word of God is, is, is incredibly effective and also necessary as a weapon against temptation as well. Each and every time Satan tempted Jesus, it was the word of God 
again, empowered by the Holy Spirit within him that thwarted his blows, right? It was the truth that kept Jesus from being deceived by lies. A lesson for us, again, of how important it is to be saturated in the word of God, how important it is to know the word. But again, this is more than, than just about reading Bible verses to ourselves or to Satan. Besides, he knows the Bible better than we do. Case in point, he even tried to manipulate Jesus with it. And Jesus is the word become flesh. Which is why before anything and above everything, again, we need Christ in us. We need to trust in him by faith. Remember, temptation targets that which is already in our hearts. Which means in order to resist it, we need our hearts to be changed. And the only one who can change our hearts is Jesus Christ. It's with Christ in us that we can stand up to the enemy with confidence and proclaim, as it says in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, to to both overcome the enemy and to be prepared to stand up to him, we need to abide in Christ. We need his Holy Spirit to sanctify and guard our hearts. We need to be in his word and in his presence daily because ultimately it's Jesus alone who gives us the freedom and victory over sin and evil. Through him we can overcome. As it says in Revelation 12, 11, they triumphed over him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And as Jesus said himself, I will build the church, right? Jesus will build the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus is the victor. And therefore it's through him that we can overcome temptation and walk in righteousness, As Warren Wiersbe writes, in Christ we have at our disposal the same spiritual resources that Jesus used when he faced and defeated Satan. Prayer, the Father's love, the power of the Spirit, and the Word of God. Plus, we have in heaven the interceding Savior who has defeated the enemy completely. Satan tempted us to bring out the worst in us, but God can use these difficult experiences to put the best in us. Temptation is Satan's weapon to defeat us, but it can become God's tool to build us. So we see here that not only can we overcome temptation through Christ in us, but just as Jesus was made complete through his testing in the desert, so too can God perfect us when we're tempted. In this way, we can see that the significance and usefulness of going through times of trial and temptation. But as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we don't have to fear, right? Because no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to to endure it. So if we find ourselves in the midst of temptation to turn from God, in that moment, remember 
We've been given a way of escape. But it's not by our own willpower. It's not by our own strength. It's not by our own positive self-talk. It's through the free gift of grace found only in Jesus Christ. It's by the power of his Holy Spirit and his word in us. He's our escape. He's the one who was tempted in every way we were yet did not sin. He's the one who overcame the devil at the cross and now sits with all authority at the right hand of God. He's the one who suffered in our place so we could live in freedom and walk in righteousness. Jesus is our victory over evil. So let us confidently approach his throne of grace in our time of need. Amen. Amen.